Well, speaking of a biography, a sports writer's life from the desk of a New York Times reporter is a behind-the-scenes look at the people and events that were part of the history of pro sports. Gerald Eskenazi has written sports for the New York Times for nearly 50 years and is the author of more than a dozen books. And he joins us this morning in the Sun Coast Morning Magazine. Jerry, thanks for spending a few minutes with us. How are you? Hey, i got to tell you something about WWW. Yeah. Uh, I just came back from Italy, and uh, when people give me their website, you know what they give me? Woo, woo, woo. Yeah. Woo, woo, woo. That's what I say in Italian. Oh, really? Boy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know if you remember. I don't expect you to, but I had the privilege to take your journalism class at Adelphi back in 1982, and I'm glad to see you mention the alma mater in your book. Oh, uh, get out of here. Yeah. So, uh, so I must have taught you well. You did. You did. Yeah, it was a good class. Uh, it might have been the first year or second year there. I'm not sure. When did you start take, teaching that class? Um, I want to say uh, 79 or so. Oh, okay. I, I did it till about the early 80s. Yeah, I guess it was the third or fourth year you were there. But yeah, writing for newspapers was the uh, class, and uh, you took us all to uh, the draft, I remember, and oh, to yeah, a hockey yeah. game, the Islander game. It was, uh, yeah. it was a lot of well, I, thought, the time. I thought it was great when I was teaching to be able to actually, I mean, to have a teacher like, like I was who was a working journalist, you know, because let's face it, most of the courses you take in college, you never actually got out into the field to do anything, you know. So, uh, I mean, if you were studying history, you didn't go visit any castles or anything, right. you know. So, so yeah. if you were doing about writing, why not go to where the stories are? Well, that was the whole point. Uh, I, I was a business major there because uh, I took some comm classes, and basically, you know, you learned uh, the theory of broadcasting and all that, but you didn't learn the actual uh, doing it until you worked at the college radio station, which I did over there, WBAU. And like your class, uh, you actually took us, you know, we had to cover a game, and, and it was real uh, practical experience, which hey, I used it today. Did I take you to the Islanders game in which there were naked players, and, and uh, you know, in the locker room, my wife said to me that the, that the, the uh, fathers of the, of the uh, female students are going to have me arrested. That was our class, oh, right. Okay. We we had two girls, I think, in that class, or two or three, and they're eight, right? <laughs> but are you still there teaching that class, or? No, no, I gave up. Uh, I gave up teaching some time ago. Actually, I um, I do a lot of uh, speaking now, and uh, and of course, having having written the uh, you know my my memoirs, which geez, it was just a, a, I mean a great thrill, and it was just. Uh, and of course, it, it didn't really take that much work because I've, you know, I've lived it. So it's a great book. I, I just finished it the other day. It, it really gives uh, a lot of the great stories, uh, but it also explains the process of writing while covering a game. Uh, maybe just give a, a, a touch of, uh, you know, doing a running story and a sidebar of how you covered a sporting event. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, uh, I think that that most people who have taken, who have done any writing at all in school, uh, you remember they give you Christmas vacation in college or in high school, and they say, "Oh, when you come back, give me three pages." Right. You know, you so you get ten days to do it. Of course, you're not going to do it until the, the the night before your school returns. You know, because why would any <laughs> student ever do work on time? But uh, uh, for example, if I was uh, if I were to uh, cover a Yankee game, and and unfortunately most sports are at night now, uh, most major league sports are at night, I'd have to write an early edition story before the game starts, uh, which means I get to the I get to the Yankee Stadium three thirty, four o'clock. Uh, talk to Joe Torrey or A-Rod or whoever I'd, I'd be talking about, and then write 800 words or about three pages, three typewritten pages, uh, about a game that hasn't even started yet. So really what you try to do is you try to avoid actually writing about the game itself uh, because our first edition goes in about 7.30, and obviously since the game doesn't start till 7. So now I've already written one story, three typewritten pages. 
the game is on. Uh, you've got to write about uh, uh, the game is, uh, if you're lucky, the game is over, say, by 10 o'clock. I have to 11, which means one hour to write 800 words, which is pretty fast typing. Mm -hmm. But what I do as the game is going along is I've actually used some of my early edition story, and then I write about some of the runs that have scored in the game or some of the sidelights. And then when the game is over, I really just write about three or four what we call live paragraphs. So now I've written two stories. Now I've got the luxury of till 1 o'clock in the morning, two full hours, to write another three pages about the game itself with the quotations from the manager and the players and, and to look up any interesting statistics that happen. So in the course of a game, uh, which takes the two hours and 50 minutes or three hours, I've, I've actually spent nine to ten hours at the stadium uh, and have written three complete stories. And amazingly, um, uh, it's done on time. And it fits in the paper also. We have what you call rubber type. Right. You know, if you write too long, they just stre they just pull it and stretch it so it fits in. That's right. <laughs> and a lot of people don't realize uh, when you're covering a game, you're actually almost doing a writing a written play by play of the game, aren't you? Then you edit out the parts. That... Exactly right. I mean, it's you know, it's not as if the fantasy. And, and I can't tell you how many people. First of all, I I can't tell you the number of people that say to me, "Do I actually go to the games or do I write them off television?" Yeah. <laughs> then the second question, I want to know if I pay to go to the games. Right. Uh, so I I tell everyone that I not only go to the games free, I have the best seat in the house, and I then I get to see naked ball players afterwards. <laughs> uh, uh, but you don't really get to enjoy and you know a, a game the way you would as a fan because you're working. And uh, let's face it, there is a, a lot of camaraderie in the press box. You do have your times to fool around, uh, and we have the luxury of instant replay like everyone else at home does. Uh, but you're really there to work. I'm, I'm not there really to jump up and down. In fact, there's a, there's a time worn expression called no cheering in the press box. Mm -hmm. So we're, we've adopted, uh, those of us in the newspaper uh, business, uh, or some people call it a scam, we, 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 we sort of uh, have become sort of cynical and we make fun of all the ball players while we're up there. Charles you know. Eskenazi joins us. The Sports Writer's Life is the name of the book. And you, you talk about in the book uh, how sports writing changed uh, in the early 60s stylistically. Uh, the old school uh, guys like Dick Allen uh, would pretty much just write the game uh, story, description of the game, but not add a lot of the quotes and behind the scenes. And guys like yourself and Maury Allen, Phil Pepe kind of changed all that. Talk about that for a minute. Yeah, well, you know, um, uh, it, it used to be that uh, ball players were interviewed before the games. Um, and then when the games were over, the writers sat down and, and wrote the stories, and they very rarely used live quotes. Uh, in other words, it, unless it was something really significant that happened in the game, uh, most of them would actually be writing uh, uh, what they saw, um, which is really not bad. But in, in today's modern world where people have become uh, caffeinated by uh, watching television and they know the score and they know the story and they know the replay, the reader wants something more. There, there was a fairly well-known writer for the, uh, uh, for the World Telegram in New York called Joe King, and he said, why should I interview? He said, I know more than those jerks. <laughs> you know, and uh, and what happened is that with the rise of television, uh, people were forced to go down into the locker room because because the people at home, uh, you know, knew knew the result. So you couldn't write a story the way it was when I joined the New York Times, uh, May 26, 1959. Uh, you would say the New York Yankees defeated uh, the Washington Senators last night, three to two. Period. Mm -hmm. uh, Mickey Mantle, uh, you know, got two hits. Uh, Whitey Ford did. This, so and so did that. Uh, you couldn't you couldn't get away with that anymore because people's tastes have changed. Uh, more sophisticated writers came along. They were better educated. Uh, also, they drank less. 
than the, than the other writers. God, I mean, when I joined the paper, it was really still a drinking man society. And, uh, and, 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 you know, I think that that was a significant... And now, of course, as you, as you guys know better than anyone, you've got five all-news, all-the-time cable channels right. on. Right, right. Uh, You're really competing w- with, the, with cable TV and all sports radio and all that kind of thing. Now. You know, I was surprised to find out, in the early 90s, I, I did a stint as the Times' as, uh, as TV sports columnist, and even back as far as... Uh, as recently as 91, 92, ABC, CBS, and NBC uh, attracted 92% of the viewers now they get 49 percent of the viewers so everyone's tastes have changed and now you've got cable television with those little crawls underneath giving you instant news all the time so when you write a sports story today you've got to have you've got to sex it up and you've got to use which were, uh, for the new york times once upon a time was a no-no we have to use an adjective mm-hmm. and uh you know that's, a, that's what i try to do and that's what a lot of my colleagues of the 60s did and uh, also uh, sort of gotten in-depth behind the scenes what guys were thinking of, what they had for lunch, uh, you know, what their mothers did, uh, you know, how many children they fathered out of what lot, <laughs> that kind of stuff. That's, that's, a, that's a couple of books right there for a couple of those NBA players. Yeah, that's that? a good idea for me. Right? <laughs> <laughs> a Sports Writer's Life is the name of the book. Gerald Eskenazi talking with us on the program. And uh, you tell an interesting story about how you started as a copy boy at the Times while going to CCNY, and you had actually a choice at that time, didn't you, either going to news or sports, and you chose sports. So why did you do that? Well, you know, I was uh, actually, uh, m- my background was uh, is, is really news writing, and I was the editor-in-chief of the City College. Uh, Waking up. I am having a real good time. <laughs> AM 1220. And we're back on the Suncoast Morning Magazine. Sorry about that, uh, Gerald. We had a hard break there. You were talking about uh, the choice between uh, news and sports back at the Times when you began. Yeah, and um, uh, I don't know where uh, where you guys uh, uh, left me in order to try to make some money, but I was talking about the fact that, uh, like, like uh, everyone else growing up in Brooklyn, you know, I had played all these street corner games, and I liked sports and news sports, but, but re- news writing was really what I wanted to do. And then I got up to the New York Times, and uh, they had an opening for a copy boy in sports and a copy boy in news, and I looked at the newsroom, which stretched from 43rd to 44th Street, from 8th to 9th Avenue, and had 74 Pulitzer Prize winners, and I said, I better get into sports, you know? and uh, you know, I was young and bright and, uh, and aggressive, and I thought that I could uh, you know, make more of a mark of my, for myself, and, and, and believe it or not, if you're, if you're a, somewhat of a sports historian, the night I started, May 26, 59, was the night that Harvey Haddix pitched his 12-inning perfect game. Oh, sure. And lost in the 13th inning. So I thought, boy, what a business I chose. Oh, yeah, that's great. You tell some great stories in the book about interviewing uh, some of the icons of the sports world, Muhammad Ali and and uh, Joe Namath. Uh, just give us a couple of uh, words on both of those guys. Well, you know, uh, uh, I, I've subsequently gotten fr- very friendly with Joe, and whenever Joe meets people, he always likes to tell them, you know, he said, I like Jerry because he came over to me the first day he, he was on the Jets beat for the New York Times, and he said, I introduced myself and I said, Joe, my name's Jerry Eskenazi. I'm with the New York Times and I don't know anything about football. Well, Joe said he liked that because he said I was the first honest uh, sports writer he had ever met. Um, And, uh, you know, one of the things I point out in the book is that it's very difficult uh, for a young writer, uh, and uh, I'm sure that all your listeners can put themselves, what happens if they suddenly met 
uh, a Joe DiMaggio or a Ted Williams or a Muhammad Ali uh, or a Mike Tyson um, or a Barry Bonds, and now they suddenly had to start talking to them on a professional level. In other words, not just, hey, I'm a great fan of yours, you know, I like to watch you and this kind of stuff. So it, it really takes a certain kind of mindset. Uh, and I remember when I, uh, I was a young reporter and I'd met Joe DiMaggio, and, and it was before a Yankee game, and um, he was talking about pitching again, about facing Bobby Feller. And I said something I, uh, like, uh, boy, I said, that must have been intimidating. And DiMaggio, who was obsessed with his privacy, uh, and uh, as you guys well know, mm -hmm. uh, after he had married Marilyn Monroe, you know, he, uh, he, he was... Uh, Never talked uh, he about her. That, yeah, everyone thought, he, he thought everyone was trying to... So he said to me, when I said to him, boy, I said, that must have been intimidating, you know, to face Bob Feller. He looked at me and he said, well, now you're prying. <laughs> so I thought to myself, I thought to myself, oh, you dummy, you know, here you, you waited your whole life to meet Joe DiMaggio and you meet him, and now the first words out of your mouth, you know, you say something stupid. He, well, kind of, he was kind of a strange man, though, wasn't he? Especially in his later years, right before he uh, passed away. He was very private. Very ex extremely private, and uh, uh, a friend of his who uh, went to his 65th birthday party was telling me that uh, uh, he was driving him home for the party, and uh, Joe was, uh, I guess, say 65 and probably had something to drink, and he nodded off. And uh, as they were driving along, they hit a bump in the road, and DiMaggio sort of woke up and, and blurted out, those sons of a guns killed Marilyn. Uh -huh. <laughs> That's the most in-depth thing he probably ever said. Yeah, yeah, yeah and right. then he went back to sleep again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, of, and of course, I talk about Muhammad Ali, which is a different kind of story because I was, uh, uh, you know, 40 years ago, I was a uh, considerably younger uh, white guy, and uh, uh, although I've always been a white guy, yes, yes. and uh, and Muhammad Ali came along, and now suddenly um, reporters had to change the way they looked at race and the way they looked at America, and, and Ali made us think. Uh, I had a lot of problems with him, though. Not that he was difficult to talk to. He was the easiest guy in the world to talk to, and you always got a story. But I, I always felt that, that he had surrounded himself with a lot of these hoodlums, you know, who made these prison conversions. Mm -hmm. And I thought that he was basically an anti-white kind of guy. Uh, and now, ironically, you know, 40 years later, he's a sort of um, icon and symbol of uh, togetherness, you know, and, and, he, and he sings a different tune now. So he's probably changed over the years, and I've changed over the years, and I guess the America has changed over the years, too. He's become heroic now, whereas back in the 60s, a lot of people didn't want anything to do with him. Oh, well, you know, one of the reporters for the, uh, the Daily News, a fellow named Dick Young, a mm -hmm. famous columnist of his time, and even our own author, Daly, who was a, the, the first sports columnist in America to win a Pulitzer Prize, they wouldn't call him uh, Muhammad Ali. They called him Cassius Clay. Clay. Right, right. Uh, which he said was his slave name. Um, and those of us who were smart very quickly called him Muhammad Ali because, you know, what, you know why not? Right, right. Uh, and, and, you know, you wanted to get, you wanted to talk to the guy, and, you wanted, and he was just a, a fabulous talker. I also uh, was very proud of, of the fact that I had uncovered, uh, as a young writer, his, uh, uh, his uh, uh, IQ. And, you know, in those days, in the 60s, IQs were covered up. Mm -hmm. And I found out that he had an IQ of 76. Really? So, which, which tells me something about perhaps the, the fallibility of IQ tests. Because this guy was a very, you know, my wife used to say to me, and other people would say to me, gee, did he really make up those, was he as clever as that? And he really was. He was just quite a fascinating guy to talk to. Very bright guy. He could talk off the cuff on many topics, too. Yes, absolutely. He gave speeches, I know, at colleges back then. So I loved his, I loved his rhyme uh, in which he said, they all must uh, fall in the round I call. 
Uh, and when he talked about his uh, fight against Sonny Liston, he said they think they're coming to see a fight instead of they're going to see the launching of the first human satellite. <laughs> and a guy with a 76 IQ to say that. So, uh, I, like I say, uh, as I said, that, that tells you something about, uh, you know, not trusting uh, IQ tests necessarily. The name of the book is A Sports Writer's Life from the desk of a New York Times reporter. We've been talking with uh, Gerald Eskenazi. And on a personal note, I'd like to thank you again for teaching such a great class. It has helped me out. Oh, well, that's <laughs> great. I can see that. I mean, you've asked the best questions I've Oh, you're very nice to say that. <laughs> we'll do it again. Okay, thanks. Thank so you much. very much. Appreciate it. Gerald Eskenazi joining us, and we have about four minutes before 10 o'clock.